Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. Pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher, Santosh. Hi. And joining us once again, your family. You don't need an introduction. (laughs) Exactly. No introduction necessary. Um, Pharmacist Eleanor um, and sometimes space enthusiast. So much more professional than what I was going to say. Space pharmacist. (laughs) Space pharmacist. (laughs) pharmacist to the stars yes there we go (laughs) oh that's perfect that has to go somewhere in the motto of your corporation or something i like that that. pharmacist to the stars (laughs) and as we have now hit the highest heights folks this episode is going to be about the lowest lows (laughs) (laughs) well i mean yeah we're gonna bottom out but i understand this was your inspiration santosh I, yeah, I, I, there is, we're going to get into it pretty soon here about what inspired me, but this was a beautiful confluence of physiology and history. And Josh went through and added a bunch of beautiful other history nuggets. <laughs> it was more like a confluence of confluence. It, it was. But, Sorry. But without, I couldn't get through the word history nuggets. Well-formed stories. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think at the end, it all kind of blended together and came out in a firm log. Well, as much as I love to shoot the shit with both of you, Oh, way too on the nose. (laughs) Without further ado-do. Too clever by half. (laughs) This episode is about poop. A whole episode, a scoop on poop. Really, it's all downhill from here in terms of maturity, folks, but you will learn a lot. Let's start with, let's go digging through the past and talk about the story that began all of this. Santosh, how did you first find out about the story of Lewis and Clark. 
Yeah, this was actually on a uh, kind of a trivia thing. And it was a trivia game show that was on YouTube. They were talking about uh, Benjamin Rush, who we're going to get into, a very famous scientist for his time and a very famous physician. And he was the one who he gave them their medical supplies and basically outfitted them. And subsequently, it turned into this gorgeous poop story because specifically what he provided allowed us to get into a lot of what we're going to talk about in the next few minutes. Well, let's back up a little. Benjamin Rush. Yes, the Rush from Rush Medical University. Uh, I did not put that together. Was not actually the one who sold Lewis and Clark their supplies no oh. that was that was israel whelan of whelan and whelan um <laughs> purveyor purveyor of public supplies at the northwest corner of fourth and market in philadelphia so i i think he wrote the prescription though right like he he um nope no he just developed the laxative oh, see gotcha. when lewis and clark set the whole process in motion and this is because I believe, Eleanor, if you check our show notes, I gave you a direct link to the pharmacy list that was given to him. Uh, And it's 29 different botanical and chemical medicines, plus a few related equipments and supplies. So Whelan went down the street to George Gillespie, MD, and Joseph Strong, MD, druggists, which is my favorite name for a pharmacist. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Druggists. And the order, which... Back in the day, came to $90.69, was ready for delivery on the 26th of May. And fun fact, by the time of the American Revolution, about half of the drug manufacturing in New England was controlled by Quakers. Whole new meaning to why they invented Quaker Oats. Because after the Revolutionary War, the Quakers had actually maintained ties with parts of England, specifically the merchant parts. So they were the ones able to get a lot of supplies that would be far too expensive for the newly independent Americans to import, or still relatively new uh, to import or import cheaply. So because of those maintained business connections, uh, Quakers owned a bunch of the pharmacies. So, you know, (laughs) I got to know here. So Eleanor, and and this is probably, you know, a lot of what you learned, you know, not only the the chemistry and physiology and, and, you know, how uh, the proper medications went together. And and in this day and age, things like side effects and, and monitoring a patient and making sure like that's, that's what a good pharmacy consult does. Right. But this is like old school compounding, um, yeah. This is yeah, yeah. Just putting stuff together with your own two hands. Yes, with a mortar and pestle and and rolling pills. Yeah, Damn. all the stuff I all the stuff I hated in pharmacy school. <laughs> so, Eleanor, did you get a chance to peruse the list? So, Eleanor, uh, I'm going to go ahead and virtually slide this shopping list for Lewis and Clark over to you. And why don't you tell us uh, what you recognize and what they were preparing for, or at least what kind of things they were trying to be prepared for. Well, I see four ounces of Ipecacuan, which I would make a leap of faith to say was probably syrup of Ipecac. Oh, that, um, that's is, the vomiting one, huh? Yes, the vomiting one, yes. Oh, to make you vomit. Yeah, okay. Yes, to make you vomit, <laughs> which I think that's out of favor now, actually. Um, okay. But yes, Ipecac. Uh, camphor gum. Hmm, interesting. Um, oh, asafoetid. I have no idea what that oh, is. Asafetida? Like the... Yes, asafetid. That Oh, that's an herb, isn't it, Josh? I mean, that's for cooking. Yeah. Hmm. 
Okay. Uh, well, among other things. <laughs> One is Opi Turk Opt. I don't know if that's opium, Turkish opium. <laughs> I don't know. Tragicanth. That sounds like the name of a dragon. I bet that's a uh, an herb. <laughs> Wait, which one was the opium one? Opii. Tur- oh, that's that's laudanum. Well, there there is a laudanum in there. There is a laudanum um, on there. There's a yeah. laudanum in there. There's fifty dozen bilious pills to the order of Benjamin Rush's pep preparations. Carter Four penis dues. Yes. What are the penis dues? <laughs> you jackass, Josh. <laughs> what are those? Unbelievable. In my defense, Santosh, that item literally is on the list. <laughs> but to not bring it up, I, I had to. You can't set me up like that. You're such a bad person. <laughs> but let's. But as you as you scroll down the list, you see that Lewis expected to confront things like egg and intermittent fever, which is what we now call malaria. Okay. So he ordered 15 pounds of powdered cinchona bark, which is what we've talked wow. about in the gin and tonic. Uh, so that'd be about 1,560 grain doses. Okay. So and this so cinchona is where what we derive quinine from. That's Correct. right. Yeah. Okay. He also expected his men would contract venereal disease, you know, as penis do. And, <laughs> and four, four of the drugs or medicines were indicated for gonorrhea or syphilis, including calomel, copaiba, and a pound of mercury ointment. I can't get this joke out of my head. Like 50 dozen bilious pills? the heck oh opium and laudanum for pain relievers and Uh ointments ointments for wounds and abrasions zinc zinc and lead could be combined to make an eye wash uh you know for dry eyes because i enjoy rubbing lead into my face no no but this would have been like i know gold um, <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. Because heavy metals can act not as an abrasive, but if it's mixed with uh, something where it's a liquid form rather than a straight, you know, mineral form, then it can act a little bit like a a lubricant for a while. Um, that's why, for instance, they mixed like uh, tetraethyl lead was actually a liquid form, which was what we later on put into our cars. And the reason for, you know, 50 dozen bilious pills or Russia's pills are that given that their diet consisted mostly of whatever they could catch along the way, which meant lots of st- dried strips of wild animal meat and occasionally tree bark, these guys would have been constipated. They called the pills informally. They were called thunderclappers for reasons I'll leave you to figure out. <laughs> so I actually do know the uh, you know the story behind this. Um, Josh, did you want me to? Is there a lead that I'd be burying if I um, take it away, Santos? Away? So, Let it all loose. Yeah. <laughs> Let her rip. So, Eleanor, I'm going to tell you the main ingredient in here, and then, you know, you let me know whether or not, just from your knowledge of chemistry and, you know, what various toxins and drugs do to the body, how it would work. Um, So, these were 50% mercury chloride. (laughs) 
And then, you know, the rest of it was just to form the pill. Um, so, yeah, th- this was like heavy duty. I believe, Josh, I believe that they were actually given a fun name of Bilious Thunderclappers. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> and so, there was yeah, something c- on here called God Stopped. GD Stopty bottles. I don't know what the good Stopty bottles. I don't know. Oh, God, that might sure. did the opposite. A walnut well, chest. Well, the thunderclappers <laughs> basically had enough mercury in them to kill a man, but it passed through your system so quickly that there really wasn't a lot of opportunity for it to be, to be absorbed. So here's here's where we start getting into the science slash medicine. Aside from having mercury in your poop is bad. Uh, <laughs> Remedies. I mean, other than just good hydration and fiber. Sure, sure. You know, I think of, I think of uh, you know, Miralax, Dulcalax, you know, I know, but those don't really well, have any metals. Well, metals can definitely them. speed it. I mean, think of magnesium. Oh, that's true. Oh, and milk of magnesium. Very few ounces of magnesia on here. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so this is. <laughs> it's a very MOM. It's a horrible choice for a divalent cation, essentially. So <laughs> rather than having something fairly inert like magnesium in the gut, <laughs> it's mercury. <laughs> now, if you're mm, if you're a great. certain kind of individual reading the adventure journals of Lewis and Clark, you're making note of every time they mention having to take one of these pills for constipation because you get off on scatological historical nonfiction. <laughs> okay. But if you know that you and your men are going to spend a whole day expelling everything you've eaten for a week, okay. you make darn sure to dig a proper latrine when you break camp. <laughs> and actually, this little bit with the latrines is very interesting, especially from a archaeological and historical standpoint. So Santosh, tell us the story that ultimately came to your attention. <laughs> yeah, so this is what I love about this. Um, as you know, mercury doesn't degrade easily at all. Um, and this is why it's really important when there's mercury in the groundwater or something like this, you have to kind of wall it off and, and get it away because nothing happens to it. It's a very stable element. Well, archaeologists learning about Lewis and Clark and where they went from place to place could actually follow they did mercury their, Yeah, they could track their shiny poops. <laughs> That's lovely. They could actually they could use metal detection and then a little bit of chemistry, you know, to to kind of change the color of something after you dug something out of a latrine to, you know, mix it in that turns red or purple. I say, "Oh, there's mercury in here. This must be a Lewis and Clark camp spot." <laughs> and oh they God. were able to trace I'm not kidding. The entire westward journey <laughs> from oh from end to end, <laughs> following the shiny bits. It's really underappreciated genius because in the years since, but by the uh, way, obviously, I don't lots- think Benjamin Rush was planning on. That. <laughs> I don't think he was like no, no, no. But I'm just saying. The the technique of the archaeologists is underappreciated genius of using the poop because, think about it, while in a modern day they would have been in lots of woods and other forests where people are camping routinely and there are going to be other latrines, 
but nobody else is making a habit of using mercury-laden laxatives and something that really doesn't decompose for hundreds of years. So they know for a fact that every single campsite where this is located was this or, I don't know, maybe a Forrest Gump Sasquatch. <laughs> well, it, it could have been Sacagaweas. <laughs> but I, I don't know if she was either smart enough to just not take it or have a vegetable from time to time. The major reason for this was the fact that the only thing that you could really preserve well on a trip like this, because there was no refrigeration or anything like that, is dried and salted meats. And if you're eating that constantly on a you know months-long trip from the Atlantic to the Pacific, then you're going to need something to help you go, or you're just you're going to end up with a, an exploded colon at some point. You know, this actually reminds me of something when I took toxicology in pharmacy school, if I remember correctly, I mean, certainly it's the uh, organic mercury that's that, you know, you, if you're ingesting, that's really toxic. But when she means organic, she means carbon somehow linked to the mercury, not like you get it at Whole Foods. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'd like to get my order of organic mercury. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah no, a, little, a little different. Um, but the the type, you know, the mercury you think of like in the mercury thermometers. Mm -hmm. If that breaks and you accidentally ingest that, if I recall, elemental mercury like that or quicksilver, one of my favorite terms, uh -huh. it doesn't real. It's not very well absorbed. So I don't think. There was like any specific like antidote for that. Um, yeah, you're actually right. Like inhalation is more of a concern. I think. Right, and and this is why it kind of worked well, and why Lois and Clark, Lewis and Clark. Sorry, I just said Lois and Clark. <laughs> the new Adventures of Pooperman. <laughs> he said the title. The the Lewis and Clark. Why they probably didn't go insane is you're absolutely right in that this case, if you have mercury or mercurial chloride, which doesn't have a carbon component to it, it probably just stayed in the gut and provided a lubricant the way that magnesium would or milk of magnesia and it was it was the right idea it was using you know a metallic a, a, a divalent cation to actually kind of substitute for calcium to get things move 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 kind of thing to stimulate those action potentials and and get peristalsis going but it was just the wrong metal to pick <laughs> um yeah but honestly like if they used you know, just the right amounts kind of thing. Probably you're right that they didn't absorb enough for it to like accumulate and cause like the madness or anything else like that. So they made it intact on the other side. A fun little historical story. And uh, be careful where you poop because future historians are going to be watching <laughs> what you ate. <laughs> <laughs> like in this age of like privacy checking and i was like i'm gonna cancel my facebook <laughs> you come along it's like watch where you poo and <laughs> doesn't matter zuckerberg's got your shit <laughs> <laughs> you know he would too if he's got the chance like how can i monetize this so but now let's take our our poo from the earth to the moon galactic poo <laughs> and and for this, we'll enlist the help of our pharmacist to the stars, our, oh, yes. our cosmic druggist. 
<laughs> because Eleanor, after uh, exploration pooping didn't end on Earth, oh no, our astronauts, like irresponsible dog owners, left over 96 bags of waste on the doorstep to the Earth. Okay. <laughs> Well, think about it. You know, when you have to like counterbalance the moon rocks coming back, something's got to give. So, you're just human. We leave the poo for the moon rocks. rocks So now, now scientists want to go back and recycle and answer a question that has profound implications for future exploration of Mars. Did our poop create life? (laughs) Is it, or at least, or at least, did it maintain it? Because as as we went over a little bit earlier, poop is largely a solid organ. And while a lot of it can be made up of water, which is why all that salted jerky can constipate you, <laughs> over, over 50% of average fecal mass is made up of bacteria. Thanks, database of useful biological numbers. <laughs> yeah, I'll go one step further because we are now in the era of poop transplants and, you know, using this to take care of C. diff, it it should be actually regarded as tissue. It is another living tissue, the same way we think of heart tissue or lung tissue or skin. So so we're like, actually, when we're defecating, we're shedding, shedding tissue. We're shedding tissue because of how integral, not only our own like cells, but- That's why your poop looks like a snake. Yes. (laughs) Such a dork. (laughs) He's serious for 13 seconds. <laughs> okay. okay, I'm good yeah. now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, no, truthfully, though, because it can be used in things like transplantation in order to restore balance, that microbiota part of it, along with the milieu that it comes in. So all of the other solid and liquid material that that bacteria lives in is a tissue, actually. And um, it can act the same way. So it, it works together, not just that particular thing of poop, but, you know, collectively, you know, the all the contents of your colon. And interestingly, those tissues are demarcated a little bit like your intestines, so that the types of bacteria and the type of tissue subsequently that you see in the duodenum or the early jejunum is very different from that of the colon. We we know that bacteria require at least some moisture for reproduction, even extremophiles. And and Eleanor, you've also told us that bacteria grow very differently in microgravity conditions. So what can you tell us about that? You know, how likely are these astronaut diapers to still be teeming with life 50 plus years later? <laughs> uh, well, well, first of all, I would be somewhat skeptical that there's um, much of that, anything that's really alive on the surface of the moon. And I'm only speculating because... Um, you know, first of all, there's no atmosphere on the moon. So you're bombarding the surface of the moon with cosmic radiation. Um, so I would expect that to be a pretty high radiation environment. Um, not that bacteria can't exist. You know, these extremophiles can exist in certain crazy environments, like the bacteria that's been recovered from Chernobyl, for example. Um, but uh, I'm a little skeptical that, you know, the lack of 
a lot of water on the moon. You know, you probably, you're probably desiccating that uh, garbage that was left on the moon. So I don't, <laughs> I don't know how much is, is really viable that would be left there, but stranger things have happened. So, so who knows? But to your, your question about growing, um, what happens to microorganisms and, in a weightless environment, we know that from some experiments that have been done uh, by the Russians as well as the U.S. program, there can be changes that occur in the uh, genomes of the of these bacteria, and they may actually change their growth patterns. You know, in some cases, their cell walls can be thicker than they are on Earth, or they are dividing more avidly in space than they are on Earth. Uh, or potentially could become more virulent. I know there's been a number of experiments done with salmonella, for example, suggest it could, it could be more virulent in space. So, and the exact reasons why we don't know, does it have to do with changes in just the weightless environment that may be triggering something with, with their gene expression? Who knows? I mean, we know actually our genomes in humans can change when they're uh, in space as well. So why, why wouldn't a microbe do the same? But, uh, but yeah, it's very interesting. And, you know, one of the concerns I've always harbored about these changes in bacterial, uh, growth in space is that particularly if they be- can become more virulent, does that mean if you get, uh, let's say, uh, community acquired pneumonia on board a spacecraft, would it be more difficult to treat it? Consequently, oh, wow. you may not have enough medication to, you know, to treat, treat that condition. So that's one of the things that, that I always think about. C. diff could cause literally explosive diarrhea. Oh, God. <laughs> and, and the worry here when you're talking about various virulence factors that come around, it may not even be an issue of bacterial resistance per se, where you're actually, it's difficult to use the appropriate antibiotic that would be on Earth in order to treat the same infection in Mars or in space. It may even be that that infection just plain advances so fast and with well, such kind yeah. of, yeah, and with such kind of ferocity that you're not able to contain it in time in order to even, you know, give the chance an antibiotic time to work. I, I do see what you're seeing though. I guess maybe the only other thing I could think of knowing that we keep our fecal matter for transplant at minus 80, which is it gets way colder on the moon for minus 80 and probably like the heat and the cold and the heat and the cold is not good. But I guess if some of it ended up in a nice shaded crater, if maybe it would stay like kind of preserved for a bit so that like, mm-hmm. you know, you introduce a little water and they kind of come back. <laughs> or, well, and because- they, they say that, you know, in those shadowy areas, like in the, in the Southern polar area, they, you know, speculated that that's where water ice may actually be present. So maybe, but we haven't visited the South pole, you know, the, in polar the region. dark area of the moon, some shady yeah. <laughs> shit was going down. <laughs> So yeah, we 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 don't know. One one thing I do want to quickly mention though about um about bacteria, they have done some limited experiments with um Staph aureus and E. coli in weightlessness, and they do actually shift their MICs, their susceptibilities to common sure. antibiotics. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow, with wow, the, wow. and that also is what scares me in terms of, you know, God forbid someone gets an infection, um, you right. know, how how and easily is it going to be treated? Now, do 
Do drugs and antibiotics also shift their abilities in space? Well, as in, as in is it just the bacteria, or is it also the 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 chemistry of the actual antibiotic? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, we certainly know there is evidence that some dosage forms of medications have increased rates of degradation in space. And then it's kind of things you would commonly expect, like a liquid dosage form or a, a cream. I mean, we know on Earth that those can be can degrade at a slightly higher rate than like a solid dosage form, like a tablet. That's also a concern as well. And we don't know if these things are being exposed to God knows what. Could these drugs be degrading to some toxic intermediate that may be accumulating in that dosage form that could render, you know, could make someone sick? We, we don't really know. There'll have to be a lot of additional studies on humans and their excrement, as well as our microbiota, our microgravity microbiota, before we can successfully make it to Mars. But before we can do all these studies on poop, we need a good way to quantify it. If only some sort <laughs> oh, God. of method existed. I'll, I'll change one thing about that, Josh. You, you do you, uh, qualify, actually. Just uh, talk about the quality in terms of... Uh... Well, you need to know the quality and the quantity. Santo. Oh, that, that's true. That's true. If only some sort of scale existed. <laughs> if only... <laughs> Wait a minute! From all the way back from our very first episode, oh, like seven some odd years ago, it's time to talk about the Bristol stool scale again. What you may be asking, you got you scientists already have a method to measure my poop. You bet we do. <laughs> and it's it's a pretty like old and tried and true one, huh? Well, it it was originally created in 1997. Okay. So, oh, thanks oh. for making us feel old. I didn't realize it was that young. I thought this was like from the 1800s or something. I'm learning something yeah. new. As one of the methods of studying gastric emptying, as well as ongoing studies of irritable bowel and just general human health, the Bristol stool chart was developed in 1997 as a clinical assessment tool. There are seven types. Uh, well, the original study, which is fun to read, used 66 volunteers who were told to eat amongst them a variety of different diets, but each one had a specific diet. And then the quantity, quality, color, content, and a whole host of other factors of their stool was studied by, I don't know, some enterprising grad student. <laughs> That's oh so God. fantastic. I didn't realize this was how it, this was developed. I thought this was, you know, retrospective with a lot of patients. This was like a controlled environment. This is so cool. This doesn't just spring into being, you know? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. But I thought people were like, oh, thinking back to my patients or, or maybe like, you know, just having them do like a, a you know, a, a data journal or something like that, and then write it down and tell me what your poop looks like or take a picture. But this is all like, this is very controlled type of thing. I love it. Dear, oh, poo, and- dear poo diary. <laughs> and I know what we're doing for Josh's birthday this year. <laughs> we're going to bake him a Bristol oh, school chart cake. There are recipes all over the internet. Awesome. Don't at me, folks. (laughs) So, of course, the first thing people want to know when they hear that there is a stool scale is, well, what's normal? What should my stools look like? Hey, Josh. Hey, Josh. 
What's normal? What should my stool look like? <laughs> well, Santosh. <laughs> now that you ask. Oh, it's seamless. It's so seamless. <laughs> the type of stool depends on the amount of time it spends in the colon, which is affected by your diet. So, or as well as your medications and lifestyle. So the Bristol stool chart, uh, every person will have different bowel habits, but the important thing is your stools should in general be soft and easy to pass. So most of you are looking for a type three or type four, but let's break it down just to go over them. <laughs> the scale, not the actual stool. So <laughs> type one is separate hard lumps uh, they look like little rabbit pellets, or as described in the stool chart, nuts. And nuts. they are, <laughs> and they are hard to pass. Uh, those are the kinds of diets you're going to see in vegetarians or people with very, very strict diets, or even uh, severely dehydrated. Wait, really, vegetarians? I thought we were all. I mean, okay well I, I should say i should say vegans okay. hardcore vegans all right because i'm pretty three or four i'm not a vegan but yeah well, okay they eat like rabbits they poop like rabbits no, that, so that's kind of the interesting thing eleanor that you said that so we we have a, a museum close to our our house called kid space where it's all like nature discovery and all these things that kids can do kinds of hands-on in there they have silicone casts of various poos so like if you're going through the forest you know oh if you see a print or if you see a poo what made that poo and it's really interesting that you say that because yeah you, you can actually compare you know a bristol stool scare for aminals too and it, it does match with the diet that makes a ton of sense so next up type two sausage shaped but lumpy <laughs> is your your traditional like log but just a little bit of a lumpy log kind of looks and like again, a chocolate covered nut roll and oh, again oh. a little bit a little bit harder to pass it's like a baby ruth kind of yeah okay or an almond joy <laughs> Ooh, sometimes you feel not, like a nut. not a mounds <laughs> not a <laughs> <laughs> sometimes i feel like a type one sometimes. yeah <laughs> that's it that's see this is why they missed on on their advertising back in the 90s they should have had you on board i'm doing my best folks i really am uh type three is described as like a sausage but with cracks on the surface without making any jokes that's because you're now starting to take on a substantial or sufficient amount of water in your diet smoothing out the collection of bacterial mass and undigested food so when you are well hydrated this is where you start getting into the quote-unquote normal bowel movements okay and by the way we should say that when you're saying like these 56 people and all these other kinds of things, we are pretty much, I'm guessing, largely Western Caucasian type of people. This does seem to hold true across multiple cultures, although I can't say whether or not it's universal. Right, right. but what would be considered normal would be different because of the various diets around the world. Well, they're looking at proportion of vegetables to protein, not sources of each. Gotcha, gotcha. I understand. Okay, that makes a ton of sense. Which is why this is somewhat expandable across the nations. Type 4 
is like a sausage or a snake, smooth and soft. And I know just describing it doesn't really do it justice. So I'm assuming that everyone who learns there's a poop chart immediately went to the computer and looked it up. <laughs> oh, yeah, please. Um, by the way, put in Bristol stool scale and don't do this at work. Because I'm almost certain there's going to be a Rule 34 that pops up if you try to just randomly put in poop scale. That's that's not what Rule 34 is, Santosh. Oh, oh, sorry. No, oh, yeah, not, yeah. <laughs> not that. But, you know, something, something that's not scientific. So type 3 and type 4 are determined to be roughly normal for most humans as it means you are well hydrated and achieving a sufficient balance of protein and fiber and vegetable matter or protein and vegetable matter in your diet to be easily passing stools. Once you start hitting type five, this is what we call the traveler's diet. Uh, You get soft blobs with clear cut edges passed easily. Mm. I'm really doing you all a favor by not using one of the charts that has food descriptions or equivalents. Yeah. <laughs> thank God. This, yeah, yeah. The, thank you very, very much. And you know, that's it's pathological, meaning that pathologists like to describe things with food. But I love that this is travelers. This isn't the full-on diarrhea. This is just us being introduced to different microbiota. And our body tends to get the rushes a little bit and the water content is a little higher because the poop is moving from, you know, mouth to anus a little bit quicker than it should. And we don't absorb as much of the water out. It it could also be because there might be like unfamiliar foods and stuff that, you know, you're You just don't have practice digesting. Type six is fluffy pieces with ragged edges, a mushy (laughs) stool. Fluffy. (laughs) Now, the question is, is that diarrhea? Yes. At that point, we're looking at some kind of pathology, even if it's just viral or mild in nature. Uh, Usually, you don't hit type six without some kind of problem. Yeah, the um, probably here, and, and there are two definitions that go with diarrhea. One is the quality of the stool, of course, but the other one is frequency. Um, so you could potentially have this type of a stool depending on your diet if it wasn't a super frequent stool, if you were still going like twice a day or something. And we'll get into that later because I know everyone wants to know if their poop is normal. And finally, type seven, watery, no solid pieces, entirely liquid. Uh, drink up. You're going to need to replace fluid that you are definitely losing. And depending, as Santos said, how often this is happening, you may need to seek medical care. This is this is what kills people on the Oregon Trail, folks. <laughs> but not only with the Clark, because they were, they were snorting mercury. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, they had... I know it's going to sound really weird and no, nobody should try to do this, but they had the combination of a very meat-rich diet, so they were kind of bummed up, and then the bilious thunderclappers, the mercurous chloride, would just kind of have a kaboom, you know, once every, like, five or seven days. So um, Was that a thunderstorm? or? Uh... Yeah, yeah. It, or is that just Lewis? <laughs> <laughs> So they they had this weird kind of I wouldn't call it a balance but it was like this back and forthiness that allowed them to 
you know, kind of make it through despite having way too much constipation on one side and then having a medicine which gave you way too much diarrhea on the other side. Somehow they made it all the way through because you can imagine, Eleanor, how tough it is to make it anywhere in that day and age. And they made it to the Pacific. Yeah, and, and back. Yeah. Clutching their buttocks all the way. That's right. Oh my God. Now here's a, here's so, a question. I'm sorry, this is a little unsavory, but why why is it that your type seven has a different odor compared to the other types? That's going to be dependent on the cause of it. Many bacteria, especially in large amounts, those that rapidly reproduce, are going to have byproducts, which in large enough numbers can be detected by the human nose. Uh, it's also part of the reason why dogs are able to smell out sickness in va- of various kinds as well. Uh, ill things give off different odors. So I'll add a little bit in here that's a little bit more generalizable. Um, Eleanor, what you might be thinking of, especially, I mean, I'm not going to ask you, but if there's burning diarrhea, um, if there's, if there's burning diarrhea going on, then, uh, you might actually have, um, some acidity in there. So it'll throw off like a sharp, like an acidic citrusy almost kind of smell that goes along with the regular poop smell. But there's a couple that are quite peculiarly unique that um, if you as a you know doctor, nurse, pharmacist, you've been around the wards long enough in pediatrics, before the rotavirus vaccine came around, an, a nurse, you know, an old nurse with gray in her or his hair would be able to walk right up to the door of a room and be like, rotavirus. <laughs> so th- there are some of these pathogens which are quite unique. Um, pseudomonas is quite fruity. If there's a pseudomonal type of diarrhea, there is this like quick transit that happens and carries along uh, a little bit of the stomach acid, which makes that acidic kind of acrid smell. That's the one I think maybe you're thinking of when you're like, oh, as soon as I smell that, you know, there's diarrhea in this room. Or the mm. instantly recognizable odor of C. diff to any hospital would oh, work. That's true. <laughs> that's the <laughs> or the smell of blood. Yeah, ah, that's yeah. one that Doctor Ward told us about working in the emergency room as long as he had. He says he can pick that out. Ew. <laughs> yeah. Not no. pick with this. <laughs> I do have a little pharmaceutical anecdote. Oh yeah. So obviously, if you have diarrhea part of the pathology that's going on is that your colon is not uh, reabsorbing bile acids. And so you're excreting more bile acids in the diarrhea, which is what can cause diaper rash. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is some data out there that if you mix um, well-call, a bile acid sequestrant with like desitin, it can help to sort of protect the, the anus from the uh, ravages of the bile acids. Oh, no. so you're actually, you're not just cleaning and, you know, giving the, the moisturizer or whatever for the, the skin protectant. You're actually getting rid of the inciting yeah, damage of the bile. Binding bile acids, yeah. Oh, dude. Wait, which which chemical is this or which drug? It's a question like Questran or Colocevalam. <gasps> dude, I am using this. All the nurses yeah. are going to think I'm awesome. Every nurse and pharmacist has a different 
like concoction for for mm-hmm. diaper cream, and you know yep. you put some zinc and some desitin, and there's some petroleum jelly and yeah. all this kind of thing. It's not like magic mouthwash that we use for the mouth. It's it's given another. Yes, no, this, yeah, this is magic. Ew. Something else. Yeah, Ew. yeah. yeah. <laughs> But we we give the we give the concoction some other fancy like uh, you know alliterative name or something like that. And with that, we have slid to the end of the stool scale. <laughs> Before we finally bring this episode to a close, a couple additional things. One is you may be wondering, well, now that you've told us what poop should look like and the smell of it and things like that, how often is it normal to poop? And if you've read the book, Everybody Poops, sadly, they don't include that. So scientists set out to do it. And one study, although there have been several, one study of approximately 4,775 people, approximately. Wow. uh, With quote unquote normal bowel patterns or for their region, found that 95% of people move their bowels between three and 21 times per week. So basically, that averages out to normal pooing ranges from three times a day to three times a week. And as long as you are easily able to have soft, well-formed bowel motions that are easily passed, that's normal. Okay, so you gotcha. have a pretty big range of what you can go for. And let's say you're too, oh, I don't know, unmotivated to track your poops just for the sake of it. Well, good news. <laughs> Japan's found a way to gamify that well, shit. Of course. Oh, they yeah. And I will encourage all of our listeners. I, I, let's, I'm, I'm not going to take it for granted that because you listen to this podcast, you're the kind of person who looks down at the toilet afterwards. Um, but if, if you don't, um, yeah, have, have a look from time to time. Uh, it's good to kind of take note of what's coming out of your body and what it looks like. And especially if you're having a normal day, you know, oh, that's a normal one. And then you can, you can keep it in mind for like, if something's wrong, you can tell your doctor, oh, you know, usually poops like this. And then, or yeah. you could unlock achievements. You could unlock achievements. Because, because <laughs> this game, Uncore, uh, is is a combination of two words, unko, the un, uh, unko, which is poop in Japanese, and kore means collection. So it literally translates to poop collection. Josh, but, is this Pokemon with poop? Kind of, but oh, it gets better. God but damn. it gets better. It's a free game yeah. that doesn't aim to get players to drop money, but they are interested in other droppings. Uh, it's I'm sorry, I, I'm just going to go, here's the here's the press release. Players, set in the kingdom of Untopia, players talk to anime girls Topia. and battle enemies. Literally Pooptopia. Yeah. <laughs> players talk to anime girls and battle enemies. They also report the color and shape of their bowel movements, which if they sound healthy, get the seal of approval from said anime girls. The app is a way to track digestive health, and the project was spearheaded by Yosuke Ishii, a gastrointestinal surgeon and president of the Japan Unko, or Poop Society. <laughs> Boy, that's nice. That reminds me of, uh, you know, there was that game. Wasn't there a game that came out last year called um, Flush and Frenzy? Or there was some poop game that came out last year. Well... If you look at the app on the 
Uncore, it actually uses the Bristol stool scale along with a color chart. So each day you log it and you get certain experience points and you can level up your poop. <laughs> awesome. And, and I think I've got nothing else worth saying. So that's it for this week, folks. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to sources used to research this episode. I dare you to click them. Okay. Not <laughs> at work. Not at work. <laughs> and special thanks to... Uh, Eleanor O'Rangers, pharmacist and space enthusiast, host of Space 3D. Uh, what's your next episode about, Eleanor? Well, the next episode, which I need to edit very soon, is actually we interviewed um, one of our co-hosts, Emily Carney, who um, has written several articles for the National Space Society on Gerard K. O'Neill, a uh, famous futurist, author of the famous High Frontier so uh, actually, we should be getting a couple episodes out of that interview. It was pretty interesting. So coming to your podcast uh, platform of choice fairly soon. So take it from low brow to high frontier. <laughs> and until next time, as always, wash your hands, wear a mask, stay safe. And once you are vaccinated and countries allow you in, happy <laughs> travels. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.